We're going to open our Bibles to Acts chapter number 26 and resume our story of how the Apostle Paul, who has appealed to Caesar, is now given the opportunity to give his personal testimony to King Agrippa II, along with her, his sister Bernanke and the Roman prefect of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, a man by the name of Porcius Festus. Paul, in his appeal, left Festus with no real way of writing out a charge against him, uh, because really the charges are trumped up. And so he is at a loss as to exactly how to do the paperwork. And Agrippa II shows up at just the right time to become an assistant in that, or at least Festus thinks so. Uh, Agrippa II came very close to becoming the king of the Jewish people way back in the year 44. Uh, here we are in the year uh, 58, and so he's much older. Uh, that's what cost him that position, is the fact that he was only 17 back then. Uh, but here he is in his 30s, and he is functioning as the Roman Empire's custodian of the Temple Mount and of the Jewish faith. And so he knows about all things Jewish. So Festus asks him to listen to Paul. And where we pick up today, Paul is just getting to the climax of his testimony and of the gospel. Let's read, starting in Acts 26, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That is, the uh, appearance of Jesus just outside of Damascus to young Saul. But I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then also to the Gentiles that they should repent, that is, they should change the way they're thinking, and that they should turn to God, that is, embrace the gospel, performing deeds in a keeping with their repentance. You see, repentance, because it is a change of mindset, brings about a change of action. And so that is part of our gospel message. Change from the inside out, and that will change your outside actions. Verse 21, he says, It's for this reason that the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. That is, because I'd been out in the world preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, calling them to repentance. That's why this happened. Verse 22, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Uh, remember that uh, and Agrippa II is very religious. He believes uh, in the supernatural. And so when Paul appeals to him, that I'm only doing what God told me to do and what the scriptures told me to do. 
that's very um that's very moving probably for a grip of the second and this is the core of what the scripture said verse 23 that the christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the gentiles so a lot of depth here uh, to what paul says in that last line uh, the gospel is defined by the apostle paul in first corinthians 15 as being that christ died for our sins according to the scripture so that's the depth of uh, the substitutionary atonement idea uh, but it's also inspiration because it all happened in accordance with old testament scripture that he was buried so he was for sure dead that he was bodily resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures so fulfillment of prophecy as well as a literal bodily resurrection uh, and that he was then seen alive by many reliable witnesses the apostle paul being at the tail end of that group he can bear his own testimony as having seen the bodily resurrected jesus christ but from that comes salvation light out of darkness not just to the jewish people but to the gentile people because paul is really into this idea of being an apostle to the gentiles now it's at this point festus can't stand it because remember festus is not up to speed on a lot of this stuff he's only been in country in the country of the jewish people for probably a few weeks and so a lot of this is new information uh and we don't know what his religious background is he he may be a, a religious roman but it would be a polytheist uh, and his gods and goddesses would be a lot different than the one true god of scripture uh, and all of that sort of stuff so verse 24 as paul was saying these things in his defense Festus said with a great with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So he thinks that Paul is pretty smart. I mean, that's pretty obvious already in his interactions with Paul. But he thinks that Paul's studies has caused him to kind of go over the edge of reality in believing all of these different things about Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter dying for sin and bodily resurrecting and ascending back to heaven and all of that stuff. He thinks that's a little bit too much. Verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. So you can see he's being very polite and engaging with the prefect or with the procurator. But his focus, as you will see, is on the guy better prepared to embrace the gospel. You've seen this. We've seen this in our studies of Paul. When he goes to a place, he goes to the, to the synagogue, to the Jewish people first, because they're the best prepared to receive it. Then, after he's reached, you know, the maximum amount of um, effort with them, then he turns his attention to those not quite yet up to speed. 
So while he was certainly, he would certainly like to have a chance to evangelize Festus, he's more focused on the Jewish guy in the room. That's Agrippa II. Verse number 26. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So Paul says, Mr. Festus, uh, Procurator Festus, King Agrippa is on top of this stuff. He knows about these things. He grew up in the country where they happened. So I know that he is aware of all this stuff. And then he digs in with Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And when he asks that question, he's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. Do you believe the scripture? I know that you believe. And that's, that's a very positive thing to say. It is, um, it is complimentary to the fact that Agrippa is well known to be very religious and very studious. So, I know you believe in those scriptures. And then Agrippa said back to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, there is always this question about the wording here, because you can't be certain. They did not use punctuation marks uh, in the Greek text. We don't hear uh, whether there's a raise in voice at the end here. So it could either be a question, as in, I'm surprised you're trying to do this, or it could be a statement. In a short time, if you keep this up, you could persuade me to become a Christian which can be kind of a, that can be a little bit ambiguous as well. It could be, uh, if you keep this up, you're going to make me into a Christian with a little bit of a, nah, not going to happen. Or it could be, I am very interested in this and uh, I think I could be persuaded. So we can't be absolutely certain what was the, what was at the core of his remark here. But we can be sure of Paul's response. Paul said, whether short or long time, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Now, now remember the group that's here. It's not just simply uh, King Agrippa II and his sister Bernanke and uh, Procurator Festus, uh, and a few administrators. It's all of the tribunes from the military service that are here, and we've got a whole bunch of the community leaders from Caesarea here. We seem to have people from uh, the Sanhedrin, or at least some of them from the Sanhedrin, or high priests and others, Pharisees, community leaders from the Jewish side of the equation. They all seem to be in this room. And so Paul says, King Agrippa, I don't care whether it takes a short time or a long time. I would prefer everybody in this room right now become a Christian like me. And then he goes for a little bit of humor. Except, of course, for these chains. 
Because remember, everything he said, with his hand gestures and everything, he's got a chain that attaches him to a Roman soldier nearby. Because he is a, a Roman citizen under detention, awaiting disposition of his case. That's just the way the rules work. Uh, and uh, so he makes this joke, but it is a pointed joke because of something I told you last session. Agrippa I, Agrippa II's dad, spent some time as a Roman citizen detained for crimes that he'd actually committed. Um, he had uh, not paid debts and overextended himself financially and embarrassed uh, the whole uh, situation of his uh, prominence in society. And so he was arrested, and he was uh, detained for a while in chains. Now, eventually, uh, he was freed from all of that, including his debts, because of his connection to the Roman emperor of the time. Uh, and uh, one of the the interesting things that happened was that after his chains were removed because the charges were dropped, he was presented with a golden chain of the same weight to kind of um, make up for the time that he spent in chains. I was thinking of six or seven months that he was in chains. And so Paul is aware of that story. It's quite, it's quite famous. And so he, I think, may be trying to relate to King Agrippa. You know, I, I'd love for all of you to be just like me, except no chains involved for any of us. Verse number 30. Then the king rose. That's a signal that he is done hearing. And the governor and Bernike and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn. Now, where do they go? Uh, it's possible they just went to a private chamber to have a conversation it may be that they withdrew to a more private setting. Maybe they went to the residential area at the back of the palace. Uh, behind the front administrative area, uh, there is a very decorative um, environment uh, all centered around a seaside pool. It's a freshwater swimming pool. Uh, surrounded by, I think, two stories of rooms on all sides. And there's a, a decorated uh, dining area down there. See the mosaic every time I go to Casaria. Looking forward to seeing it this next trip. Uh, and could be that they decided to go have a meal together and uh, discuss some of these things. However it happened, it says in verse 31, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, so back and forth, talking, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So they all come to the same conclusion. There is no reason in the world this guy should be up uh, facing any type of death penalty or even being detained for any time at all. Verse 32, Agrippa then said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So that is Agrippa's assessment. Yeah, um, I would have advised you, Procurator Festus, to declare him innocent and free him. 
but I can't do that because of the appeal. Uh, you see, everybody's hands are tied because of that. And so that is how Paul's trip to Rome begins. Chapter 27. Uh, this is all taking place probably in the um, later summer of 58. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, the Augustan cohort, a little bit, I think, hard to pin down. I think it's possible that it might be a specialized military unit that transports prisoners. Uh, and uh, that would match what's going on here with them picking up Paul and other prisoners. Uh, but remember that Paul is not convicted of anything. He is a detainee, and he is a, um, uh, a person who has appealed to Caesar. So Julius is quite aware of that as Paul comes on board. Some of the other prisoners are under death penalties. Others are under other penalties, uh, and they're heading to Rome for whatever needs to happen to happen. Some of them might even end up going into uh, the different venues where prisoners were killed as some sort of spectator sport. Uh, but uh, they are going to travel by civilian sea traffic. Uh, there are constantly ships running all along the coastlines of the Mediterranean Sea. And some of these are pretty good sized. Uh, the grain ships in particular, very large. And so not only did they make their money by trade goods, but a lot of these ships also had passenger space on board and they took on paying passengers. Uh, and we know that some of these ships had a large number of passengers. We'll find out later uh, how many passengers are on Paul's ship uh, when the shipwreck happens. But I want you to know that Josephus talks about his own shipwreck and how there were 600 passengers on the ship that he was on, which is an amazing amount of passengers on a ship from this time period. So what happens is, uh, this Augustan cohort and the prisoners in their custody embark on a ship of Adramitium. Now, Adramitium is uh, north of Ephesus, up in that area. And so this ship is apparently running back and forth between wherever it is was their farthest port of call and Adramitium. Uh, and so this ship of Atterbenium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, and we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Uh, but you'll notice uh, that it's the first person plural in the narrative here. So that means Luke is on board as well. Now let me talk just briefly about Luke. 
Luke has been with Paul for the last two years. Uh, he came with him on that tail end of the third missionary journey, and he's hung around in Judea for the last two years. And more than likely, it was during that time period that he traveled around and interviewed all the eyewitnesses of the gospel and then wrote down what we know of as the gospel of Luke. So that puts the gospel of Luke having been written no later than 60 because he's now heading away from uh, the Holy Land along with Paul back to Rome. And once he's at Rome, he will write out what we're reading right now, Book of Acts. And he'll finish that up right around 62. So, we've got Aristarchus that's traveling with Paul. Verse 3, the next day we put in at Sidon. So what they're doing is they're just coasting up the east end of the Mediterranean. Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So he is given a pass to leave the ship in custody of his Roman soldier or soldiers and visit Christians there at Sidon and then come back. Verse 4, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Uh, so what that means is the winds are coming out of the west, perhaps out of the southwest, in with such strength that they can't cut across south of Cyprus like they did when they were coming the other direction earlier in the book of Acts. So instead, they're going to just keep following the coast and uh, try to wait for the winds to not be so contrary. Now, that's not going to be happening. Uh, that's actually going to be part of the problem. So verse number five, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Kalikia, remember that's the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, that's where Tarsus is located, and of Pamphylia, that's the south coast of, of uh, what's modern-day Turkey, uh, just north of the island of Cyprus, we came to Myra of Lucia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So the ship that they started on, it may be that the centurion decided, well, this ship is having a hard time. Uh, I'm going to move to something bigger. And so he gets on what is evidently a grain ship that is returning to Italy filled with grain from Alexandria. So this is a monster ship, a pretty good-sized ship. And so they all get on it. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days, that's because of the wind, and arrived with difficulty off of Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Uh, so now the the ship pilot, the, the captain of the ship, uh, they've come to the conclusion they're not making it back to Rome this season, not during this sailing season. 
Uh, and so now they've decided we need to head for the big island of Crete and find ourselves a winter port. And so that's what they're in the process of doing. Salmone is uh, a, it's a point on the northeast corner of Crete. Verse number eight, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which it was the city of Lasea. So now they're going along the south coast of Crete. And you can actually get a map of Crete out, and you can find all these points on it. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Now, the fast that he's referencing is the Feast of Tabern... Excuse me, the... the uh, uh, Yom Kippur, right before the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it's actually right around the time that I'm recording this, uh, which is uh, the middle uh, of, uh, of September, or toward the end of September. So we've just recently had uh, Yom Kippur. So the weather for open sailing is very difficult. Uh, in the Mediterranean after that time of year. So because we're almost out of time today, let me just summarize it with this. They need to put into port for the next three months. But choices are made that cause them to be caught up in a storm that will shipwreck them for that three-month period. 